welcome everyone. Thank you for coming. My name is Kelly Kirkpatrick. I'm the Associate Project Director for Advancing Competency in Geriatric Care in Rural Northern New England. Um, we're a federally funded program um, whose mission is to provide evidence-based geriatric education to healthcare professionals um, and family caregivers. So thank you for being here. Um, we're excited to welcome you to Issues in Geriatric Health, Clinical and Nursing Insights. Uh, December next month will be our last video conferencing monthly series. And then we're going to try a new format in 2015 of offering monthly podcasts. So stay tuned um, that you can listen to at your convenience and still apply for credit. So stay tuned on that. Hopefully it'll be a more convenient format for some people. Um, our final video conference in December will be on the topic of care of critically ill older adults presented by Nicole Sorensen. Um, so our grant, ACGC, and its activities are funded by the Health Resources and Services this funding allows us to offer the program at no charge. Our work is to enhance the care of older adults by offering comprehensive education targeted to nursing staff especially, emphasizing evidence-based best practices. Um, in order for you to receive educational credit for this program, please make sure you have signed in and that your name is written legibly. Um, if it's not legible, you won't be able to receive credit. Your contact hour will be posted to your online transcript within one month of this program um, at the continuing website. An instruction sheet on how to access your transcript is included in the information at the table out front. So if you didn't get one of those, make sure you do. It explains how to access your transcript. Um, the Center uh, for Continuing Education no longer offers paper certificates, so you can only access it online. You need to attend 80% of the program to receive credit. Uh, I want to make sure to let you know that neither our speaker nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one has refused to disclose. Any product, service, or company being discussed or displayed in conjunction with this activity does not imply that there's a real or implied endorsement by the American Nurses Credentialing Center or Darmstadt Credential Center. Um, you should have received an evaluation form and a data form that we would, will need back from you when you leave. Um, in order for us to continue to receive funding through this grant, we need to provide the government with some information about who attends our program. So that's why we request that you fill out that form. Um, also, this program is being video conferenced to other remote sites. If you're at a remote site, please make sure you hand in your uh, form to your site liaison at the end of the session. So for those of you here, um, you may hear voices from above. If people from remote sites have questions, that's what we're hearing, that um, their audio will come through to us. Um, so if you're at a remote site, if you could please mute your audio right now, but feel free to unmute it if you have any questions or comments. Um, and if you have a cell phone or pager, if everyone could please silence those now. Um, and whew, I think that covers the housekeeping announcements. Thank you for your attention. Um, today's presenter is Dr. Lauren Vieira. She'll be speaking on the topic of polypharmacy in older adults. She is the medicine and surgery pharmacy lead here at Dr. Hitchcock Medical Center and earned her Doctor of Pharmacy from the University of Rhode Island. Her areas of interest include geriatrics and medication reconciliation. Please welcome Lauren. Great, thanks Kelly. So can everyone hear me okay? Okay, good. So I want to thank you all for coming. Um, as Kelly mentioned, one of my areas of interest is geriatrics and I'm hoping to achieve some further certification. So CGP, which is Certified Geriatric Pharmacist in the next year. So this is a great presentation for me to get started with all my studying that I have to do. So I'm very excited to give this presentation and thank you all for coming. There is a microphone in the auditorium. If you could wear that, that would give our audio even better. It should be in one of the drawers. Okay. 
you hear us better now? Yeah, well, did you turn the switch on on the microphone? Yeah, we think, we think we have it. It has an earbud attached. Is that the... Yeah, it's got a little microphone. Oh, nope. Oh, we no, the wrong thing. Okay. <laughs> okay, hold, hold on. <laughs> Okay, there we go. All right, so restarting. So as Kelly mentioned, I do not have anything to disclose at this time. Okay, so for objectives. So by the end of this presentation, I would hope that everyone would be able to describe five age-related changes in older adults that can result in alteration of drug response, assess for potentially inappropriate medication use in older adults utilizing validated screening tools, and propose strategies to optimize medication regimens in older adults. So first I just want to start off with a polling question. So what is the projected life expectancy of a U.S. citizen in 2015, which is not far off? A, 90.3 years, B, 78.9 years, C, 82.4 years, or D, 72.5 years? So show of hands, who thinks A? B? C and D. Okay, so it looks like we're split between B and C. So B is actually the right answer. And moving to this graph, which kind of describes it a little bit more detail, why is geriatric pharmacotherapy so important? And as you can see from this graph, the number of people ages 65 and older is on the y-axis, and on the x-axis are years from 19, 1900 to 2050. So as you can see, the amount of older adults is growing pretty rapidly, with actually the subgroup of individuals 80 years and older increasing at a rate of 4% per year. So something else to keep in mind is that in 2011, the first of the baby boomer generation actually turned 65, so we'll be seeing a lot more as the years progress. And by 2050, it's expected the population of older adults will reach 22% of the population. So pretty important stuff. So the spectrum of aging, um, I really like this diagram because I think it really shows that the process of aging is a progressive decline in the functional reserve of multiple organ systems and their functioning. So you have the healthy aging track and then you have frailty and they're, they're definitely different. So an important goal to remember when we're caring for the older adult is that we want to keep them healthy by maintaining their functionality, we want to keep them well, and we want to keep them independent for as long as we possibly can. It's important to remember that frailty is actually um, something that we need to consider always. So they represent a, sub, a subgroup of the population in whom not exactly aging per se, but the result of multiple disease states actually affects them much more. So you'll see on frailty that they're more ill, they may be more dependent, they may be disabled, and they may be in the hospital or another institution much more than a healthy aging adult. So it's important to remember that over 50% of the older population has more than three chronic illnesses. And I've been seeing in literature recently, they're claiming it as multimorbidity. So not just comorbidity, but multimorbidity. So I purposely put the pharmacokinetic section up front so I could get it out of the way quickly and not bore everybody. Um, but it is important to remember pharmacokinetic changes. And when I think of pharmacokinetic changes, I think what the body does to the drug. 
So the next following slides are meant to provide a few examples and some general concepts about how pharmacokinetics play an important role. And I broke it up into absorption, distribution, metabolism, and elimination. So absorption. Overall, the absorption of most medications is not actually altered to a clinically significant extent. So we do see changes like increased gastric pH, which may affect some medications such as iron, which comes to mind, that need an acidic environment to be absorbed. So in a situation like that, potentially the absorption of that medication may be slightly delayed. But again, the data that's out there says that it's not exactly clinically significant. Um, increased GI transit time, we will see. Um, and then also you need to think about the skin. So a lot of older folks have skin atrophy or thinning and decrease in their muscle mass. So we need to take this into account when we're thinking of using a transdermal, topical, intramuscular, or subcutaneous route of administration. So age-dependent changes in body composition. So I really like this image because I think it gives a good representation visually of the changes that occur. So overall, you're going to see an increase in body fat, a decrease in plasma volume, a decrease in the total body water, and a decrease in extracellular body fluid. And it's really important to remember the body composition changes because those really affect distribution. So as I mentioned, increased body fat, decreased body mass, and total body water. You also may see a decrease in serum albumin that may be secondary to possible malnutrition at home. Um, this comes into play when you have a medication that's really highly protein bound and may also have a narrow therapeutic index. So the classic drug that comes to mind for me is phenytoin. So any change in a drug dose of that medication may have a really harmful effect for these patients. So we need to keep that in mind. Um, in addition, Bingo. I, I link, um, I kind of wanted to split out water soluble drugs. And when I think of water soluble drugs, I'm thinking about morphine, digoxin, and lithium. And because there is a decrease in the total body water, the, the volume of distribution is decreased as well. So that may lead to an increased plasma concentration that we need to keep in mind. Um, lipid soluble drugs, on the other hand, so I think valproate, um, potentially other medications such as um, valproic acid, I can't think of my other ones right now, but they will have an increased volume of distribution because the fat content is increased, which may lead to a prolonged half-life. Yeah? So sometimes in um, CP online, if you go, there's a kinetics tab, you can click on that and that's where I get a lot of information. Yeah, so that's a quick and easy way. Um, so we need to keep these in mind. The other thing that I think about when I think about distribution is a loading dose. So because their volume of distribution is decreased, um, sometimes the, the volume of the load or the amount of the load needs to be decreased as well. So think about digoxin. So someone that's older may need a lower loading dose of digoxin versus maybe a 50-year-old patient. So things to consider. Next is metabolism. So the liver represents the principal organ of drug metabolism. And as we know, it has a really remarkable ability to regenerate and maintain its function when it's injured or throughout the aging process. The two major things that are seen are decreased hepatic mass and hepatic blood flow. So overall, 
the metabolism of drugs seems to be pretty preserved, but you may see reduced drug clearance, prolonged half-life, and increased bioavailability of some drugs. And lastly is elimination. So after the age of 30, glomerular filtration rate progressively declines at an average rate of 8 mils per minute per decade. However, about a third of older patients will show no decrease in renal function, and some will even display improvement in their creatinine clearance. So rather than the aging process itself, it's more the effects of chronic disease states that really affect kidney function. So if someone with long-standing diabetes or hypertension, you're going to see the effects because of those chronic illnesses. What you will see is a decrease in renal mass and renal blood flow, and also decreased concentrating ability. So ultimately, you may see a decrease in glomerular filtration rate, or GFR, which will affect medications because it will reduce their clearance and prolong the half-life for the medication. And also, if it has active metabolites, those metabolites are going to stick around in the body much longer. So we need to think about that. So a clinical controversy. So I hope everyone's familiar with the Cockcroft and Galt equation. It's probably the most popular equation I've seen that gives us an estimate of a patient's creatinine clearance. It's really important because most of the renal drug dosing recommendations come, comes from this equation as well. So we need to be very um, aware of this equation. Um, what's important to realize is that this only gives us an estimation of kidney function. So it's not, you know, specific and it's not exact an exact science. And we need to consider individual variation when we think about the decree, degree of declining renal function. So what some clinicians have done and published is that in older adults, they'll actually round that bottom serum creatinine concentration to one and then calculate this formula. So what this does is it sets you up potentially for a worsening renal function than what may be there in actuality. So it's going to lead us to be more conservative with our drug doses. However, um, a lot of people do do this because older patients, again, remember, have a decrease in their muscle mass. So this is kind of a tribute for that. What I usually do is I like to lay my eyes on a patient, and if they're a patient that's up, moving around, doing activities, maybe going to the gym, I know that they do have some muscle there. I may not round to one, but if you look at a patient and they're really frail, maybe they're cachectic, they're not really doing anything, then maybe I would round to one. So it's a good way to kind of account for that muscle mass. So my next question, which of the following medications needs to be renally dosed? So we have A, atenolol, B, famotidine, C, gabapentin, and D, all of the above. So who thinks A? B, C, and who thinks D? Okay, so everyone in the room is very smart. So the main reason why we want to renally dose these medications is essentially to avoid side effects. So with atenolol, we want to avoid ex excessive bradycardia. Famotidine, we want to um, avoid anticholinergic side effects. So I'll talk about these a little bit later, but um, confusion can be a big one. And gabapentin, we want to avoid excessive sedation so that they're not a fall risk. So now that I've covered a little bit of pharmacokinetics, I want to touch on the pharmacodynamic changes really quickly. So basically, when I think of pharmacodynamics, I'm thinking what the drug does to the body. And I'm thinking more of sensitivity. 
So we know that older adults are more sensitive to most medications, and there are a list of possible mechanisms here. So possibly it could be to changes in concentrations of the drug at the receptor site, changes in receptor numbers or affinity, and then there's age-related impairment of those homeostatic mechanisms that our body has in place. So some examples are if you're giving an older patient warfarin, they may be more sensitive and at a higher risk of bleeding. If you give an older patient a benzodiazepine, they may be at, may be at an increased sedation risk. And narcotics, they may be, have a prolonged duration of their pain relief and also sedation. So I think it's somewhat often that we see an older adult on all three of these medications. So it's important to realize that they're pretty much a really good setup for a fall that could result in some serious injury. So we got to keep our eyes out for that. And then this slide, I did want to call out the risk factors that link to safety because safety of our patients is really important. Um, so these are the following risk factors that set up an older adult for an ADR pretty easily. And we need to be aware of these and also be able to identify patients that may have multiple risk factors and hopefully try and intervene in a proactive manner. So age 85 years or older, if they have a low body weight or a body mass index, creatinine clearance less than 50 mils per minute, they have multimorbidity, a prior adverse drug event, inappropriate prescribing, polypharmacy, low health literacy, and medication non-adherence. So I'm going to talk about the last four in the remainder of the presentation. So first is polypharmacy. So um, there's multiple definitions out there depending on where you look, but as a summation, I really like this one, which is the concomitant use of multiple drugs or the administration of more medications that are indicated clinically. So if you've ever heard a pill for every ill, that's pretty much displaying polypharmacy at its finest. Um, important thing to know, a lot of people link polypharmacy to the number of medications someone's taking. I don't necessarily think of the number because we know that these patients have a lot of chronic disease states which require medications to help them. But I, I more think of, are there more than are clinically necessary? So in order to make those decisions, you really need to look at the patient as an individual and think about their goals of care. So the prescribing cascade really follows polypharmacy hand on hand, unfortunately. Um, so simply stated, this is when a patient may present with symptoms or an adverse drug reaction, which may be misinterpreted as a new disease state and thus a new medication is prescribed. So the patient's walking out with another medication. When in actuality, the symptoms that the patient is presenting with may actually be a side effect of a medication they're already taking. So perhaps a better route of what to do may have been to look at their medication list that they're taking and see what could be causing the symptoms. So then you could possibly dose reduce or maybe discontinue that medication instead of adding a new one. So it's really important to think about this, especially when our older patients may be seeing more than one prescriber. So a lot of older patients see a primary care physician, they may be seeing a cardiologist, maybe somebody else. So that's a perfect setup for the prescribing cascade in polypharmacy. In addition, you need to think about your patients that may be having these symptoms and maybe self-treating with OTC medications as well. So another way to think about the prescribing cascade is by kind of looking at this diagram where it links it to adverse drug events and inappropriate medications. So I really like this and I think you can tell that it's 
very easy for this to happen to a patient, and it's, it snowballs really, really quickly into a disaster. So my next question, which of the following is an example of a prescribing cascade? A, a patient's on ibuprofen, they present with hypertension, they're prescribed lisinopril. B, patients on hydrochlorothiazide, they present with increase in their uric acid, and they're prescribed allopurinol. C, a patient's on metoclopramide, they present with extrapyramidal symptoms, and they walk out with levodopa, carbidopa. Or D, all of the above. So, who thinks A, B, C, and D? Good. So yeah, the answer is D. So every symptom that's listed in the middle section there could very well be caused by one, the prior medication. And instead of prescribing another medication to their list, maybe we need to kind of backtrack and look at their current medication list and see if we can make a difference that way. So as you can see, these are, these are only a few. There's a ton of different prescribing cascades that are pretty common, and I'm sure all of us can probably think of one or two patients where they've seen this happen to. So next is health literacy. And health literacy is a pretty big buzzword, word, especially lately. Um, according to the National Library of Medicine, it's defined as the degree to which individuals have the capacity to obtain, process, and understand basic health information and services needed to make appropriate health decisions. So the elderly and people that are chronically ill are at most risk to have low health literacy. And it's pretty sad because these patients need a lot of assistance and a lot of help to keep them well. So unfortunately, I think this goes unrecognized pretty often. It's really important because they're not gonna be successful with their health if they have low health literacy that hasn't been identified and they don't have people that are gonna help work through that with them. So, um, a recent study by Northwestern University looked at about 450 adults aged 55 to 74 and they found the following. Only one in five adults realized that they could take two of their medications at the same time when the directions for two medications were basically identical. One bottle said take twice daily and one bottle said every 12 hours. So I think this is pretty clear that we have a lot of work to do and there are a lot of patients out there that have low health literacy, it's undetected. Patients with low health literacy have found some pretty creative ways to hide that they have low health literacy, um, which leads me to my next slide. I don't necessarily have time to show it today, but it's a really great YouTube video that comes from the AMA, the American Medical Association. It's a series of patient vignettes using real life patients. Um, and it does an awesome job showing different characteristics patients may have when they have low health literacy and kind of the, the things patients may do to avoid having someone find out they have low health literacy. So I usually have my residents look at this and I watch it occasionally just to remind myself, but I think it's a, they do a great job. So medication non-adherence, another big problem that I'm sure we all know a lot about. Um, it's very common. It's estimated that between 30 and 50% of medications prescribed for chronic illnesses are not taken as directed. So if a patient's hospitalized, and we may do a lot of life-saving interventions and set them up with great medications, but if they don't take them because they're confused or they don't pick them up or they can't afford them, then really all our hard work has kind of gone down the drain. 
So there's many ways to improve um, non-adherence, but you need to first realize that it does result in considerable costs for many different people. So patients, employers, and ultimately our healthcare system. So there's different ways that you can try to enhance medication adherence. Um, you can try to reduce the impact of side effects by knowing the medications that you're prescribing. And I think most importantly, when you're prescribing a medication, have that conversation with your patient of what they should watch out for. So that at least they know and they'll be able to report it to you and you'll be able to kind of take care of it early on. You wanna to try to simplify patients' regimens if at all possible. So possibly if they're taking a medication that comes extended release and they only take it once a day instead of three, that's great. Um, and making sure that we know what the indication for every medication is. Establishing a routine for taking medications. So some patients have a really hard time remembering to take all their meds, so there's different ways that we can work with them. Um, seeing, you know, blister packing, if that's available. They have fancy medication dispensing systems now. Making a calendar, setting alerts in the phone, things like that. You want to determine if there's any financial restraints. So this is good to do early on. We can try and set them up with prescription excess programs, try to see if they qualify for prescription coverage, um, looking at brand versus generic, those types of things. And then lastly, which I think is most important, you want to keep lines of communication and education open at all times. I find that patients are more likely to understand and take their medications if they know why they're taking them. So as nurses, I think that they're on the front lines all the time, and I think that they can really drill home these, um, these things. So simply, if you're giving meds on the floor, you can just you know, outline why someone's taking it every single day, and with repetition, I think that's really helpful. So another way I think about non-adherence is I kind of split it off into unintentional and intentional, and determining what the root cause is is gonna make kind of how you talk to the patient a little bit different. So if you have un someone that's unintentional, non-adherent to their medications, they may have capacity and resources, a deficiency there, uh, cost may be an issue, or they might have actual difficulty taking the actual med. So if it's a capacity and resource thing, um, most of the times it's because they don't have a good memory and they can't remember. I kind of listed some things that you could do to help them. Um, cost, I already mentioned as well. Difficulty taking medications, you may have to get a little creative with the dosage form. So switching from a tablet to a liquid or maybe there's a transdermal patch. Um, other things to think about, maybe simply giving someone a pill splitter might be a world of difference. As opposed to the, or the intentional non-adherent population, that could be related more to motivational beliefs or preferences or perceptual barriers. So a patient that um, doesn't know why they're taking a medication, doesn't think it's helping them, they already take too many medications, they don't want to take this medication. I think the route really to go with them would be to keep open lines of communication, possibly bring in a caregiver, friends and family, and really address their concerns. And I think the biggest thing would be to agree on what their goals are, because if you can link the medications to getting them to their goal, I think you're on the right track to getting them to take their meds. So another question, a 65-year-old man received a recommendation from his provider to use acetaminophen for pain. He later shows up to clinic asking for something stronger. You ask how many pills he took and he replies, just like it says on the bottle, shouldn't you know that? Which of the following issues should be investigated? So A, medication non-adherence, B, low health literacy, C, financial barriers, or D, none of the above. 
So who thinks A, B, C, and D? So yeah, definitely low health literacy. And I think this is really driven home if you look at that YouTube video. There's one case that's very similar to this. Um, and just asking, um, using vague descriptions and excuses are often really common signs that someone may not really understand what's going on. And this has definitely happened to me a lot when I, when I worked in retail pharmacy. Um, I could probably count on two hands how many times this has happened in similar fashions. So now that we understand what polypharmacy is and we've talked about health literacy and non-adherence, now we want to try to get into some tools and strategies that will actually help us treat an older adult. And I really like this image because it shows different pieces of this process. And another important thing to remember is this process needs to be continually revised, especially as patients' health does decline and maybe their health status may change. So you always want to think about patient preference. You want to make sure that you know how to adequately interpret the evidence. You want to think about patient prognosis, feasibility, and then you always want to keep the goal of optimizing therapy and care plans. So today I'm going to touch upon interpreting the evidence and optimization of therapy. So interpreting the evidence. So in 2004, 15% of all major original research papers excluded older adults without justification. So I think the first step to interpreting the evidence for older adults is that there's a huge gap between evidence-based literature and extrapolating it to this population, unfortunately. So most of our studies that we see are focused on a singular condition. So if you look at the inclusion and exclusion criteria, oftentimes older adults are excluded right away because they have multiple co comorbid conditions. Um, protocols may restrict them based on other factors as well. Often, Studies don't include older adults for a couple of reasons. One, they're perceived as difficult to follow, which may or may not be true. Um, second, they're anticipated to have a higher dropout rate. And third, they're viewed as a more vulnerable population, so studies do not wish to include them. So in order to assess the applicability of information and extrapolate it to your older adult patient, this is a couple things that you can look for. So you want to look at the evidence and look to see if there's a clear indication of the expected outcome. So when I think of an older adult, I'm thinking their outcomes that they want, they want to be independent and they want a good quality of life. So oftentimes if you look at evidence-based literature, those aren't exactly their outcome measures. So you just want to make sure you're always matching up what's important to the patient and is that what's seen in the literature. Also, you, want, you definitely want to take into consideration the risks and the side effects of the treatment you may be looking at. An important thing to remember is time to benefit. So if you are looking at a study and maybe a medication is promising that in the 10-year risk reduction for mortality, that's what it's studying, you have a 94-year-old patient sitting in front of you with you expect less than five years, is that medication really going to help that patient? that would definitely be something I want to think about. Um, and then another thing to consider as well is, is this new treatment that's promising such great things, is it going to exacerbate another chronic condition that your patient has? So it gets definitely very tricky. I don't think there's any easy way to really do this, but these are just things that I often think about when I'm looking at an older adult population. So optimizing therapy and care plans. I just wanted to highlight the main goals that I'm always thinking about when I'm using medications. 
So I want to optimize the benefits. I want to make sure they're adherent. Minimizing harm, so I, I don't want to have any polypharmacy if I can avoid it, and I want to reduce the risk of ADRs. And I want to enhance their quality of life, essentially. So I want to prioritize treatments and interventions that the patient's going to have to go through. So when I'm thinking optimizing therapy, these four tools come to mind. So some of them may be familiar, others maybe not. Um, but the next several slides are meant to introduce you to these four tools and just kind of give you a snapshot of how they could apply to your practice. So the first criteria is the Beers criteria. So I think this is probably the most popular criterion. People are probably familiar with this. But it was originally developed in 1991 by Dr. Mark Beers, who is a geriatrician. And originally it looked at just nursing home patients. But throughout the years, there have been several revisions, which is great. And now there's a 2012 update, and it's kind of gone past the nursing home patients, and it covers more hospitalized patients and primary care as well. So it does cover 53 medication classes, and the way that it works is it kind of separates them out into three categories. So it lists potentially inappropriate medications, and you'll see that as PIMs, to avoid in older adults potentially inappropriate medications to avoid in older adults with certain disease states, and lastly, medications to be used with caution in older adults. So application. So the Beers criteria does serve as a leading source of information about the safety of prescribing medications for older adults in this country. The 2012 update references uses, uh, using the stop and the start criteria, which I'll talk about next, as well as a medication appropriateness index in a complementary manner for making decision making. So I thought that was pretty cool that it does reference the other tools. It's often used in research, determining healthcare policy and quality improvement for drug therapy. So actually in 2006, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services adopted the Beers criteria as a quality indicator measure for long-term care facilities. And lastly, they, the Beers criteria has a partnership with the American Geriatric Society so they've promised to regularly update it every three years, which is great, and that would mean an update would be coming next year. So limitations. So there are different prescribing patterns and availability of medications for, from United States to Europe. So over 50% of medications listed are actually not even available in Europe. So that's kind of my preference of why the stop-start criteria was, came out. It does not include over-the-counter herbal medications, so something important to keep in mind. It does lack a little bit of organization. I find if I'm trying to use, use it, it's a little bit tough to find what I'm looking for. So I think, or I'm hoping in the next update, maybe they'll get a little bit more organized. It does not account for prescription omissions. And there's no association between PIMs and adverse outcomes that's been formally looked at in the literature. So there needs to be more measurement of its predictive validity with adverse drug events. So as I kind of mentioned, due to the differences in prescribing versus the United States and Europe, the stop-start criteria comes into play. So it's really based out of the United Kingdom and Ireland. It was first validated in 2006. So what it does stand for is a screening tool of older persons' prescriptions and screening tool to alert doctors to right treatment. So it's actually two different lists. So first is a stop criteria. So it's 65 potentially inappropriate medications in older adults. And when you compare it a little bit to beers, it contains 33 instances of PIMs that are, beers does not cover. So they're similar, but there are definitely some differences. 
as opposed to the start criteria, which is the first criteria to ever address prescribing omissions. So it involves 22 evidence-based medications to be considered in older adults with the appropriate conditions where there's no indi contraindication. So it's pretty cool. So how can we apply it? So it does include instances of prescribing omission, which is great, and it lists them as PPOs, or potential prescribing omissions. It, I think it's more organized than the Beers criteria, probably because it does a better job of presenting by body system. So depending upon what I'm looking at, I can narrow in pretty quickly. Um, the 2012 Beers list is fairly consistent with the 2006 SOP criteria, but as I mentioned, there are some differences. And they have a partnership with the European Union Geriatric Medicine Society, so again, I'm hoping that it's going to be regularly updated. So limitations. So again, Western-based, uh, Western European-based medications do differ from this country. It also does not include OTCs or herbal medications. And again, there's no strong studies linking improvements in these criteria with health outcomes. So we do need more data to make sure that these are the right tools to be using. So next is the anticholinergic risk scale, and I think I hold this one a little bit near and dear to my heart. It was developed where I did my pharmacy practice residency at the VA in Boston. So anticholinergic medications are frequently cited in the literature as a leading cause for falls, impulsive behavior, and also loss of independence. So the anticholinergic risk scale, or ARS, does include over 20 commonly used medications, and it actually ranks them by their anticholinergic potential. So what you would do is you would look at each medication on the list, see if it's on the ARS, and it gets a score of 0 to 3, with 3 being the highest risk for anticholinergic potential. And then what you would do is calculate the sum. And what it gives you is an estimation to the extent that an individual may be at risk for an anticholinergic adverse effect. So why are these effects or side effects so important? If you look at the bottom of the slide, it's kind of a constellation of symptoms that lead to really bad outcomes. So confusion or delirium, constipation, orthostasis, xerostomia, visual disturbances, urinary retention, tachycardia, and also paradoxical excitement. So if a patient displays a few of these, you can see how they'd be in really bad shape. So how can we apply this? So it is a really good identification tool for some proactive intervention. So if we are seeing an elderly patient and maybe they are experiencing some of those side effects, taking a glance over their medication list and if a few medications pop up from the ARS, maybe it's time that we give some proactive thoughts on how we can fix their medications before something bad happens. Um, it is very organized, it's user friendly, it's a quick tool. And it does suggest that medications on the ARS have a partial role in the prevalence of ADEs, but more research is needed. I think it would also serve as a useful education aid for other health professionals as well. The limitations I've identified, it was studied in a primarily outpatient population, but I don't think that there's any reason why we couldn't extrapolate it to the inpatient population as well. And it was predominantly a male population given a VA setting. It does not also does not include over-the-counters or herbals, and it did not focus on the presence or absence of other causes that may have led to anticholinergic side effects. So lastly is the MAI, or the Medication Appropriate Index. 
So what this is, is it's 10 items broken down into the form of a series of questions. So the 10 questions are meant to be asked as they relate to each and every medication on someone's medication list. So as you can see, this is definitely time consuming, but I think it's time worth spending. So you can see the questions. So they relate to, is there an actual indication for the medication? Are there drug-drug or drug-disease interactions with the medication? I really, really like number four and number five and how they split them out. Are the directions correct and are they practical? I think that's really important. Um, so the tool has been used in other literature that I've seen and it, there are studies that have an association, a decrease in MAI score during an inpatient intervention has been linked to decrease in hospital readmission, which is important. And an increase in MAI score in the outpatient setting has been associated with higher numbers of subsequent hospital admissions and unscheduled visits. So this tool really highlights the importance of medication reconciliation, which is another big interest of mine, and really just doing our best to gather from collateral sources really what medications do our patients take, and then kind of drilling down into these 10 criteria to really determine if it's needed. So application. This was developed in adults 65 years and older, but it's not necessarily restricted to the population, so I think you know, if we're doing our due diligence and doing a really comprehensive med review, this would apply to any patient. And MII scores have been reported in the literature, and I've kind of talked about what the association scores have been. Our limitations. So as you can see, it does require clinical expertise to really drill down to the answers of the questions, and it's going to take a lot of time to do this. But again, I think it's time well spent. So now that we know a few tools, I just want to touch on a couple strategies and catchphrases that I often use when I'm looking at an older adult. But the first thing to realize is that we have a lot of opportunities to apply all these tools and strategies. So really, at any transition of care, so admission, transfer, discharge, and really any time a patient's accessing healthcare, we should really be thinking about utilizing these tools. Anytime there's a medication review and at any point of prescribing, so adding a new medication or even discontinuing a medication. So these are a few popular catchphrases that I have heard and I think are great and have a lot of meaning. So starting low, go slow. So this kind of relates back to our pharmacokinetic and dynamic changes. So when starting a new medication, maybe not being super aggressive and starting at a max dose, but rather starting at a lower dose and assessing and seeing how the patient does and titrating up on a more conservative manner is more beneficial. Consider indications for reducing doses. So I think this should happen at every, every drug review, especially when a change in the health status of your patient takes place. You also want to think about have they lost a lot of weight recently, maybe that would warrant a dose reduction. Um, and you also want to think about renal and hepatic uh, issues too. Avoiding starting two medications at the same time. So this, I think, is an obvious one, but it happens a lot. So the obvious re reason to not do this would be if a patient has an issue or has some symptoms or adverse drug reaction, you don't necessarily know which med is causing it. So that's kind of a problem. Also, if you can get away with using one medication, why would you want to add another me medication to their regimen, especially when we want to work on simplifying the regimen? Reach therapeutic doses before switching or adding additional agents. Kind of along the same concepts, you want to work on simplifying medications and not adding unnecessary medications if you can, if you can do that. 
And then lastly, considering non-pharmacologic strategies. So lifestyle modifications still apply to older adults, and there's other strategies that you, you can work on as well. And I like to think of, you know, you have an older patient, you want them to have a good quality of life, and what's their quality of life going to be if they spend a majority of their day taking medications? I wouldn't be too happy. So these are a couple questions I wanted to highlight when I'm thinking about is a discontinuation or a dose reduction in the future for a patient. So I would ask myself, is the medication still needed? Is the medication still effective? Does the medication line up with the patient's goals of care, which is a big one? And is the patient actually adherent to this medication, which may help you make the decision that much easier? And remember, when you're stopping a medication or discontinuing a medication, you want to take the same consideration as when you're starting a medication. So what does this mean? I try to break it down into steps because that's usually how I remember things. So I've broken it down into planning, communication, coordinating, and monitoring. So you want to plan and you want to pre-plan. You can't plan enough if you want to discontinue a medication. So you want to work with the patient and their patient care team. So maybe that's a caregiver, friends, or family, um, anyone that's helping that patient. You want to make sure that the discussion is clear and you want everyone to know what, what's going on. Um, an important thing that I had never really thought about, I went to a geriatric conference this past summer, is a lot of geriatricians were talking about when they had that conversation with the patient that they're going to discontinue a medication became a really sensitive subject because a lot of patients may think that you're giving up on them or that they're headed down the right wrong track or something's going on and they get really nervous. So I had never really thought about that. But when you're kind of planning and communicating, just be really sensitive to that. So I thought that was something good to pass along. So communicating, you want to make sure you communicate the change in a really clear manner. So that's updating their medication list maybe calling a pharmacy and telling them, hey, take this off their profile, we're not doing it anymore, making sure the patient knows or whoever's providing their medications on a daily basis. And you want to coordinate. So you want to coordinate the changes maybe with other people in the healthcare system, such as their PCP, if you're not that, or other specialist physicians that they might be seeing. And then monitoring. You can't monitor enough. You want to make sure that we're monitoring for any signs of withdrawal. And more importantly, you want to monitor their other um, comorbid conditions to make sure you're not making one worse. Because sometimes we may think we're doing a great thing by getting rid of a medication, but we don't realize the effect it has on something else. So if that starts to happen, we want to catch it as quickly as possible. And my last question. Upon a medication review, you would most likely recommend discontinuation of which of the following medications for an older adult receiving palliative care? A, simvastatin, B, acetaminophen, C, haloperidol, or D, all of the above? So who thinks A, B, C, and D? So good. I came up with simvastatin, and really, if you think about it, simvastatin, the data behind it, Really, there's nothing that supports its use at the end of life. So it's great if it's going to stop having from someone from having a heart attack in 10 years, but at the end of life, does that really matter? It's just an add-in medication that someone probably doesn't need. Um, both Tylenol and Haldol can be used at the end of life to really help with certain symptoms that patients may be experiencing. So we definitely have those available if necessary. 
So hopefully one of the things I've brought home today is that taking care of an older adult really is a team effort and no one can do it alone and there needs to be a lot of clear communication and collaboration between different people. And I think nurses have a pivotal role to play because they're often closest to the patient, um, especially if they're hospitalized and they're going through something acute. I think that um, you're able to detect and prevent and hopefully intervene if you see something going wrong. And hopefully the tools and the strategies that I've given you guys today will help make that a little bit easier. But I think your role is really, really important. And as always, you always have your friendly pharmacist to ask questions to if you need to. So my take home points are that no screening tool that I mentioned today, although they're great, they never are meant to supersede any clinical judgment. Also, guidelines and standards of care should not be ignored because your patient is, is older. So you always have to weigh the risks versus the benefit. And then the goal is always to provide the right number of medications associated with optimal therapeutic outcomes and identify opportunities to eliminate unnecessary or potentially harmful medications. So this is my last slide. And these are my grandparents, and I've had them my whole life, and they're great, so I can't get away with doing a geriatric presentation without having them up there. Although they'd probably kill me if they knew their pictures are <laughs> up on the screen. So I'd love to take any questions that anyone might have. Yeah? Uh, that was great, thank you. Yeah? Um, in thinking about the non-adherence part of the treatment, what comes to mind is a patient that I have seen who uh, said when I was at home, my blood sugar was a little high, so I took an extra metformin. So people yep. taking more than the prescribed medication. And we may actually encourage that behavior because when they're in the hospital, mm -hmm. their blood sugar is a little high, we give them a little insulin. If it's very high, we give them more. So mm -hmm. it's understandable that they may. That's a really good point. Yeah, and I, I hear that a lot too. Is I just took a little extra or I took a, at a different time than I usually do. So I think keeping open lines of communication is always a good thing, but hopefully you want to get to a point where you have a patient that will tell you that kind of thing so you're not just guessing. And I, when I teach about diabetes medications, I try to say that. Say, don't, you know, don't ever, t these don't work the way insulin does. Don't yeah. A little is good, more is not better. <laughs> That's great. Okay. And I don't want to be a question. No. Yeah. One other um, comment. That was a patient who had um, had type 1 diabetes, mm -hmm. um, but had uh, diarrhea and went to the pharmacy and bought Pepto Bismol, and he read on the back of the Pepto Bismol, do not use this if you have diabetes. He really wanted to take the Pepto, so he stopped taking his insulin for a couple of days so that he could take it. That was his understanding of yeah. the interaction. So it wasn't clear to him, and I don't even know why it would be contraindicated or not recommended. I know, I'm trying to think too. Diabetes. But, it, but his interpretation was well, I guess if I stop taking my insulin, then I don't really have diabetes long enough to take it. That's interesting. So he was trying to act kind of as a prescriber. Right. But you know he was trying to do it in the right way, so that would definitely be an unintentional, mm -hmm. not inherent, but also maybe some low health literacy too. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yep. I was wondering on those um, four screening tools you had, whether um, if any of them are currently or could be in the future on the on web links in EDH. That's a great question. So actually, one of my goals is eventually. Um, you know how we have PD context, so when you're ordering medications on a pediatric patient, it comes up as weight-based dosing. I would love to have geriatric-based dosing, so that's one of my long-term goals, but I will see what I can do with that question, because I think that's a really great point. 
Anybody else have any comments or? individualizing a care is, is a great thing and I think they're really lucky that they have a doctor that's going to take the time to do it because it does take extra time. Um, it's easy to look at a guideline and push that on a patient, right? But you have to really weigh the risks and the benefits and like you said, there's a huge gap between the data out there and actually extrapolating that to an older adult. Um, I guess I wouldn't necessarily say I'd change the way that the physician's practicing, but I think the bigger thing is you want to make sure you're communicating it in a clear way. And it's tough because if, you know, if something acutely happened and they had to go to a hospital, how, how do you let the team know that this is why I'm on everything if you aren't able to talk about it? So that is a tough one. Um, but potentially, you know, always carrying a list of medications with you and maybe a little blurb or definitely an indication of why, I think that's a good start. Um, a lot of times with like kidney transplant patients, they're put on a medication that's a very common antihypertensive, um, but it's actually not for that. It's actually to help with their immunosuppression levels. So if someone thought maybe to take that off, they, they don't really know why it's truly on there. Mm -hmm. Because patients get like three months worth of meds. And I can see one of the things that would go through my mind is like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's a really good point. And, and so then it won't be such a surprise when you do say, okay, I think it is time now. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, too, is, is maybe just um, letting the patient know that they can give the, the take back medications now. Because it's really starting to get quite a, a big deal to dispose of medications. Mm -hmm. an awesome point because I've seen in the past you know you might say to a patient we're going to stop your lisinopril now and you know like you said they just bought the 90-day supply <laughs> oh but my wife takes lisinopril and then oh my gosh they're, they're taking double the dose by accident although they were just trying to save some money that kind of thing yeah, yeah.
one other quick question. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if the voice from above wanted to ask first. Yeah. Any questions from anyone from a remote site? Nope, you got it. <laughs> so you had um, shown in one of your earlier slides that um, health literacy is has been shown to be less mm -hmm. lower in um, elderly and also in people with chronic illness. And I can certainly understand why in the elderly. But other than just being, being overwhelmed yeah. with uh, chronic illness, if there is, is more to it than that? Um, that's the extent that I got. It's the overwhelming and not really understanding which medication is helping which illness. Um, I don't know if it's anything more specific. And when I was looking at kind of perusing that website, I didn't see any specific disease states that necessarily um, were there because you know heart failure does come to mind because there are so many medications and you're constantly titrating. I would think that that would be um, a point, but I, I didn't see anything specific. The only other thing I can think of is that we look to our patients with chronic illness to be well-versed mm -hmm. in their own condition or conditions, and so maybe there's an yeah. That's true. That's true. Great. Well, thank you all for coming. I really appreciate it. Thank you.